The Bible is filled with microcosmic. I mean, small for those of you that's that's a five dollar word. I know microcosmic examples of what is occurring or what will occur in the world when God brings His redemptive plan to fulfillment. These small stories are powerful foretaste of what God is doing and what God will do in the grand narrative of salvation. Let's uh, think of the Exodus, for example. In the Exodus, the God of Abraham redeems Israel from their oppressors, the Egyptians. He acquires them as his own, and he brings them out of the nation of suffering and into the land of promise. Now, understandably, the Exodus then becomes the paradigm or the pattern that all future redemption follows after. It's from that moment on, you hear Exodus language all through the scripture, leading all the way to Jesus, who describes his own coming as an exodon, an exodus in Luke chapter 9. We have another example in the story of David and Goliath, right? Where you see yet another one-time showdown, this one-time event. It's a one-time showdown between, between the unbecoming champion of Israel, the boy, the one that nobody would have thought would have become the anointed king and Israel's serpent-like oppressor, Goliath. And these two men show down, they have a showdown where David, the, small, the smallest one, overcomes the great enemy, the serpent, Goliath, and he falls face down. And so once again, we're given yet another small example of something bigger that's happening. When Jesus comes, the one whom no one would turn their faces to, the one no one would expect to be the king, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom it would be said, does anything good come from Nazareth, would become the one who is the anointed king, would be the one who crushes the serpent and delivers us from slavery. And so we have these small stories that they're just a power-packed example of what God is doing in all the universe and what he's going to do in all the world. Exodus 5 through 7 is one of those micro-narratives, one of those small stories that you can tell real quickly, but it encapsulates what God is doing in all the world and what he's going to do when redemption is finally fulfilled. It's stories like Haman's fall and Mordecai's exaltation that remind us That in the end, God's promises always lead to a great reversal in which God humbles the self-exalting and God exalts the humble. That's the great reversal principle and it's the result of God's redemption. Pharaoh, self-exalter, brought down low. Israel, humble and weak, exalted. David, humble, is exalted. Saul, the self-exalter, is brought low and Through all these stories, we are reminded once again that God will humble self-exalters, and he will exalt the humble. So we listen carefully to this story, looking for what God is doing and what God will do when redemption comes to fruition. When all is said and done, God will dethrone some He will exalt others, and he will lift the humble out of the dust and seat them in princely places where they will feast and celebrate his redemptive work forever. Now, in many ways, the book of Esther tells the story of how Haman and the Jews swap places, right? Uh, You can track it through the feast, uh, through the who's eating and when, right? And so 
We open up the book of Esther in Esther chapter one and two, and it opens up with what? A feast uh, by King Ahasuerus, who's throwing a party literally to himself, a half a year party with bottomless wine and cotton curtains. I need to up my expectations for my birthday parties, but it opens up with this pompous display of power and feasting. And then we get to Esther chapter three and Haman uh, creates this plot and, and, and attains the king's permission to annihilate the Jews. And then what does he do? He sits down to drink wine with the king. And so here you have certain people drinking at the beginning of the story. The Jews, on the other hand, they hear of the edict and they mourn and they sit in the ashes and they fast. They go without eating. Now, by the time we get to Esther chapter five and we get into Esther chapter seven, they switch roles. Haman's eating is about to be over. Haman's drinking wine is at an end. It's the Jews who are going to eat. It's the Jews who are going to sip the wine and celebrate. He comes to Esther's banquet where he believes he's the favorite of the queen, where he believes he's the, 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 the best in the kingdom. He boasts and brags about his special position. And then in the midst of all that, between these two feasts, he has a great fall. And this great reversal then leads to the feasting of Purim, which will uh, end our story in Esther. Now, I think as we, we trace these, uh, this reversal through these feasts, Esther 5 through 7 is the important point for the entire narrative. I think we've come to the meat of Esther, right? We, we've dealt with the buildup, and now we've come to the climax. If we read carefully, then we will see that when God works his redemption, God's humble people who mourn and fast become those who feast and are filled. On the other hand, their exalting, self-exalting, arrogant enemies will feast no more. It's as Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. So those who ate a lot had the endless banquet. Now they become the beggars on the street. Those who were begging, those who were hungry, have now ceased to hunger. They're full. In Esther's case, God's empty and oppressed people will be filled and their enemies who were once full of food and wine will fall. So we have that swapping. That's so important to the narrative. You know, we don't talk about things like motifs and themes typically from the pulpit because, you know, a lot of people aren't interested in that. But my friends, to read the Bible well, we have to pay attention to the drumbeat of Scripture. Scripture's playing a melody out. And when you hear certain melodies, certain, certain tones that are struck in the Scripture, it should... Draw your heart and your mind to see a certain point that the author's making. Reversal is one of those things. It plays a certain melody in scripture that when we hear the language, when we hear the, the tone of reversal, it's drawing our minds even closer to what God is doing in all the Bible. It helps us to understand the heart of scripture. You see, the humble will essentially switch places with the arrogant at the feastal table, both in Esther and at the last feast to come, when, when all is said is done, and done. When David prayed the prayer in Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. There's a transition. Those who feasted, feast no more. Those who don't feast and who fast are those who are exalted to the table. 
Now let's get into the story. In Esther 5, only two people are invited to the queen's banquet, Haman and the king. Okay, so Haman's the number two in the kingdom. He's got the king's signet ring, which means he can sign any law he wants and put the king's name on it, and it's official, right? Nobody can reverse it. Now, at the dinner party, the king repeats his request to Esther that he made the first time she showed up and asked her what her request is. He says that he will give her even up to half of his kingdom. If she asks for half of his kingdom, it will be fulfilled. Now, you would think this is Esther's time to put an end to the travesty, right? Like, this is, this is her moment. The king has just made this unbelievable offer. Esther, ask anything you want, even up to 50% of my kingdom, and I'm going to give it to you. Surely now would be the moment that she would say, Haman's a murderous uh, fool, and he's trying to kill me. You would think that, that would be the time. this would be the time, the moment. But instead, she delays. She doesn't say anything about Haman's plot. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet the next night. One more night. And then she will reveal the plot. She will tell her, the king her request then. Now, I, I just, in reading this, I'm a pretty common sense guy. And I'm thinking, okay, here was your opportunity. Like, this was, this was your pitch. Swing for the fences here, Esther. Like, like, do it. This is the moment. Why did she not tell the king about Haman's plot right then? Did her emotions overwhelm her? Was she suddenly looking at the man who's trying to kill her and her people and realize that she's too terrified to really confront him right then? Was it maybe she was worried about what it might do to her relationship with Ahasuerus? Maybe, maybe he'll renege on his offer and kill her instead? I, we don't know. Maybe it was more strategic. All we know is that there was a delay, and the motives for the delay are not all that clear. And here's the thing. It's not all that important that we know why she delayed. What we do know, according to Esther, is that God had a purpose in the delay. God had a purpose in the, de- in the delay. The delay a- allows Haman It allows his head to swell just a little bit bigger. You see, he leaves that party boasting that he's favored by the queen. He leaves that party on a high. And it leads to this great embarrassing humiliation before all where Haman now has to clothe and crown and lead Mordecai in a procession. So whatever reason for the delay, his arrogance mixed with Mordecai's refusal to bow and tremble eventually leads him to orchestrate his own execution. Now, I think this is informative for God's people. God sometimes allows the arrogant to continue to climb upwards in power so that the world will know that their great fall is because of no one else but his sovereign authority. You know, I've sometimes in in, in conversations with with people, pastoral counseling moments and stuff, why does God let bad people take power? Why doesn't God just snap his fingers and end all the bad stuff in the world? Why does it seem like there's a delay in God's redemptive promises? We may, we may never know. There may be a million and one things God is doing in the midst of the delay. One thing we can know for sure is that God is, in fact, using the delay for his purpose. Sometimes God allows people who are self-exalting, arrogant people 
to continue to climb. And we scratch our heads wondering, what in the world are you doing, God? Knock him off now. And God lets him climb a little higher. The higher the man gets, the greater his fall. The greater his fall, the greater the glory for God. Here's how we see this in Scripture. You remember that uh, mean old Pharaoh in Exodus, right? I've often wondered about the book of Exodus. Why did it seem to take God so long to free his people? I mean, there's a 400-year stint where they're in slavery, and then he has to, like, it takes 10 plagues to, to release them. Now, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, either God's not powerful enough to do it. It takes 10 plagues. He has to keep punching and keep punching. Um, or there's something else going on. I don't think it's because God's not powerful. In fact, in the story of Exodus, God says explicitly that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will say no. Whichever way you cut it, God is sovereignly behind Pharaoh's hard, hardening. So what part, why? And I, I'm, just, I'm just asking this question in my, in my own head as I'm, as I'm reading through the Exodus. If God is sovereign over Pharaoh's hardening, if God knows that Pharaoh's hard heart and his arrogance and his, his rejection of God's command is going to eventually lead to the showdown between him and Yahweh, what part does it play in the grand story of bringing God glory in the Exodus? You know, God actually answers that question in Exodus 9. He says it directly. He tells Pharaoh through Moses, he says, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. He says outright, I don't need 10 plagues. I could have done it with one. By now I could have put out my hand, struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And then they could have just dwelt in Egypt perhaps, right? Maybe the... The, the pyramids become Israelite, right? So he could have done that if he wanted to. But then he answers this. But for this purpose, I raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. In this, God makes it absolutely clear the delay in Israel leaving Egypt is not because God is somehow hindered by Pharaoh's opposition. God could have snapped his fingers and they would have come out. He is absolutely sovereign over it. However, the more Pharaoh exalts himself, the more the world would see just how powerful God really is. Huge self-exalters fall. Huge kingdoms, arrogant kingdoms Huge governments, huge politicians and kings, huge bullies and bosses, arrogant self-exalters fall by the hand of a mighty God. Their self-exaltation brings him glory. I think of also uh, of Jesus' death. Why did God wait for three days to raise his son from the dead? You know, I'm just thinking, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Why not the next morning, right? It's like, let's, let's get this show on the road, God. Don't waste any time here. Why, why spend three days? Why allow Jesus to, to, to lie dead in the grave for three days? Again, there may be a million and one reasons, and all of them beyond our capacity of understanding, because we don't see God's way of seeing things. 
However, it does seem clear that during those three days, the disciples came to one undeniable conclusion. Jesus was dead. He was in the grave long enough that even the disciples on the road to Emmaus completely abandoned hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They said, we had hoped. Not, we still hope. We had hoped. We hope no more that he is the one to redeem Israel. But one of the effects of a three-day stint in the tomb is that it proved to the disciples definitively that Jesus is indeed God's glorious son. When we study Romans next year, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that the resurrection declared Jesus to be the son of God in power. Sometimes God delays. But the point is, is that we can trust that God is at work even when things seem delayed. In fact, the apparent delay is essential to his purpose in being glorified among the nations. Famines, persecution, pandemics, oppression cannot and never will thwart the promises of God. In fact, every single one of them advance his purpose exactly as he intends it to. COVID-19, all according to plan. Political strife, all according to plan. Who's in power in the various governments of the world? All according to plan. Nothing can thwart the redemptive plan of God. He is 100% sovereign. And with a single word, he could intervene and end all that is evil. So why doesn't he then? I think it's because he is going to display to all the earth at his perfect time that he is God Almighty. It'll be at the right moment. He has a plan. He has a time. He has it set. And at that moment, every self-exalter will fall before the name of Christ. And all will see that God is God. Whatever suffering or hardship you may face, it might be cancer, it might be job loss, it might be an abusive relationship, it might be, it might be just, just the fear that has come from living in this day and age. Whatever hardship we face... We can trust that even in our prolonged suffering, even that prolonged suffering is not outside of God's sovereign control. He has his hand on the steering wheel of our suffering. Now, we get to a preview of the reversal to come, okay? When Haman leaves the feast, he leaves in high spirits. Esther 5, 9 says, and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. And kind of glad of heart means he's a bit tipsy, right? He's had, he's had wine with the king. He had a great wine party. Esther seems to love him. He's literally at the top of his career. Things could not be going better for him. And then he sees Mordecai. And that dumb Mordecai just refuses to tremble and worship and bow down before him. Oh, it just irritates him. Why does Mordecai have to pour water on his fire of his pride, right? I think it's a key sign of a toxic self-exalter that they get angry and wrathful when other people don't give them the deference they think they deserve. So just as a little side application, you know, there's a parenthesis, you know, 
maybe elbow yourself there if you feel like you fit. So a key sign of an abusive self-exalter is that they get angry and wrathful when others don't give them deference that they deserve, that they think they deserve. That's Haman. Haman is narcissistic. Haman is prideful. Haman is arrogant. And his pride is now officially wounded. He returns home to his friend and his wife, and he recounts to them, and it it literally says, the glory of his riches. Uh, The number of his sons. He has a lot of sons, which in in that day and age is a sign of a successful, fruitful life. He recounts to them his promotions, his advancements, his favor with the queen. He brags about how he was the only one in all the kingdom invited to the party, and yet he is not content. He laments before his entourage of guests, yet all of this is worth nothing to me, nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. None of it will make him happy until Mordecai's dead. That's sheer hatred. And so his friends and his wife, after listening, they provide what seemed to him to be wise counsel. Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, and then joyfully go to the feast. So kill him, and then go eat, honey, and eat with a good conscience, right? (laughs) Can you imagine your wife saying, oh, honey, I'm so sorry about your boss. Shoot him. I mean, that's essentially what Zeresh is saying here. <laughs> like, like, you don't like him, have the gallows made, get the king to kill him, and then go, go drink your wine and have some good time. So that very night, Haman applies their advice, and, uh, and gallows are erected in, at his house, which means that he wants to be there when Mordecai, and, and, and we say gallows, we tend to think of hanging. Gallows back then was actually a big pole that they impelled you upon. Okay, so he wants to watch that from his back porch while Mordecai's suffering. Like, this is intense hatred. Now, that very same night, the king was unable to sleep. And we would be absolutely correct in interpreting the king's sleeplessness as from God. The same night Haman plans Mordecai's execution is the very night that the king can't sleep and is reminded of Mordecai's noble service in stopping an assassination plot. That might seem random, but it's not. The very same night, only a sovereign God could orchestrate things in this way. The sleepless night, it was this sleepless night, the fact that the king could not sleep, that saved Mordecai's life and initiated Haman's fall. It's going to be amazing how quickly these things happen. Now, as most of you who have struggled with insomnia know, sometimes the best medicine is a white noise or uh, listening to or watching something so thoroughly boring that you can't help but get lulled to sleep. Sometimes I listen to my own sermons. It helps. Clint listens to them as well. They work. They work. So the king does the same thing. In his own sleep-deprived restlessness, he commands for the book of Chronicles, which records his deeds and the deeds of his court. I mean, you can just imagine the drone. Today, Memucan came to speak with the king. You know, like this dry, dull, line-by-line record of what had happened, the kingdom's record. 
And it's as he's listening to this, probably trying his best to be lulled off to sleep by boredom, that they get to Mordecai's part in stopping the assassination plot. He stops them. Right there. Stop. What honor distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now remember, in the Persian Empire, it was, it was normal to quickly reward those who had rendered some service to the kingdom. Right? So Mordecai should have been given a, a reward, not now, way back when he did it. We don't know how long ago it was that he did it, but he should have been rewarded then, which was most likely like a year later. So the king finds out that Mordecai was never rewarded, and that's a huge, huge travesty that needs to be fixed. The king doesn't go back to sleep that night. He ponders and he wonders, what can I do for this man? How do you honor a man who saved your life? What kind of riches do you bestow upon him? He's already given the number two spot in the kingdom to Haman, so what else can he do? Well, the king's befuddled. You know, he's not, he doesn't seem to be the smartest king, right? He's kind of the playboy king that likes to just drink all the, all the wine and, uh, and just party all the time, you know? Just the guy that just sees himself as his job is to enjoy and feast and have fun. So this isn't, this isn't his field of expertise, how to, how to exalt others. <laughs> it's not really what King Xerxes is good at, Okay. Um, so what he does is he asks if there's anyone in the court. Is there anyone in the court that can help me? Is there any advisors that can come up with a plan for me? The young men report, Haman is there standing in the court. Now, you'll remember that the irony in this is that Haman is there to ask permission to execute Mordecai at the very moment that the king wants help finding a plan to honor Mordecai. So they bring in Haman and, and Haman goes before the king, and the king asks a simple question with no context. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, this is probably the funniest part of the story. Haman thinks that the king is talking about him. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? I mean, this is narcissism, right? I mean, that's, that's Haman. This is clinical narcissism. His, his arrogance seems to know no end. And he lays out the most extravagant proposal, thinking that he is planning his own parade. For the man whom the, king's deli- the king delights. Now, now, you can just see, he uses this phrase, the man whom the king delights. He uses it like four times in this short span. So he's, he's feigning the, the thought that he, he thinks it's him. He's pretending, this is pseudo-humility, right? For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now he stops there probably just to catch his breath and think of more. But the king likes the plan so far. Okay, this sounds good. Okay, give him a shirt that I've worn out in public. Let him ride my, drive my car around in public and have somebody else proclaim in front of him, this is how you honor the man whom the king delights. Now Haman's plan reveals his own aspirations for exaltation. Remember, he believed that it was his own honor that he was planning. 
He wants nothing short of being king for the day. This is what he wants. He wants to be dressed up like the king, ride around like the king, be heralded as a king. This is what he's, he's craving for. And then the king says, okay, hurry. Take the robes and the horses you have said. And then you just hear this pregnant pause. And do so to, the, to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. And you almost have, like, it's just, it's just hard to not chuckle when he adds the phrase, and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I mean, great plan, Mordecai. Every bit of it, horse, robe, and all. Now go do it all to the man that you hate. It's just this amazing, just, it sucks the breath out of you when you're, when you're reading this. This is just humorous irony at how this reversal comes about. And I think it's important to note that it was Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who was forced to take off Mordecai's sackcloth. It was Haman who was forced to wash off the ashes. It was Haman who had to put on the royal robe. It was Haman who had to hold out his hand and lift him up onto the horse. It was Haman who had to take the bridle and lead the horse through the square and and cry out, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. All the pomp, all the prestige Haman so arrogantly craved was given to the humble Jew who sat in the ashes at the king's gate. The humble exile, the one who's not even in his own home, is exalted to ride the high horse in this royal parade. And the one who is high, the proud prince, is forced to walk as a humiliated servant. So Mordecai's crowned, but Haman leaves the parade with his head covered, a symbol of shame. When you, when you cover your, your head like that, it was a symbol of shame. Now, I think this head covering previews the death shroud that will be placed on Haman's face in, in just the very next chapter, in chapter 7, that very night. When Haman's friends and his wife see Haman, and he recounts to them what happened, and they see his shame, they prophetically warn him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Haman's friends seem to understand something that Haman doesn't. Those who exalt themselves over God's people fall every single time. Now that word fall is important because in the Bible, when you, especially in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, when you hear that nifal, that fall, right? When somebody falls, it's typically a self-exalter that's falling down flat. I think it's important to know that in 1 Samuel, for example, the book of great reversal, that it's only the arrogant who fall. Jonathan is slain, but he doesn't fall. It's only prideful people who fall. So you have Eli, prideful Eli, who's exalted himself, even above God, to eat the portion of the sacrifice that belonged to God alone and not to him. He falls backwards off his seat and breaks his neck. Dagon, this really tall idol and associated with pride and power of the Philistines, he falls and shatters in pieces. Goliath, the self-exalter, falls face down. Saul, the self-exalter, falls on his own sword. And over and over and over again, the Bible tells us the story that self-exalters fall. And now here we have Haman, who's about to 
fall. It's at that very moment that Haman's friends and wife, wife, maybe wise, but wife for sure, Zeresh, are foretelling his great fall that the king's eunuchs arrive to take him to the feast. Now, by adding this irony, the author reminds us that somebody is pulling the strings behind this. Somebody's making it so that he has this humiliation that he's being told by his wife and friends, you are about to fall. And at that moment, there's a knock on the door for the eunuchs to take him to the place, to the feast where he will indeed fall. Somebody's pulling the strings. God's timing is always perfect. Always perfect. He never misses a cue. Do you realize that? I'm a nerd. You all know that. And so by way of analogy, just as is true of Gandalf, God's promises are never late. They arrive exactly when they intend to. That's what's true in the book of Esther. God's redemptive purposes, his promises, his salvation is never, ever, ever late. It arrives exactly, exactly on the dot of when he planned it to. This is perfect sovereignty of our God. Absolute sovereignty. So we come to the conclusion here. You're probably familiar with the biblical adage, whoever, whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall, right? I think it's phrased a little different in Texas, right? Because we reword everything. Be careful where you stand lest you fall, right? Um, so you've heard that adage. Esther would modify that sentiment just a bit, warning you to be careful how you feast lest you fall. Because Haman comes to this feast, and it is, uh, it's, it's at this feast where he's going to fatally fall. Haman and the king, they've probably eaten by now. Um, The party has gone on for some time probably, and now they're sipping on wine. So this could be the after dinner party, whatever it is. They're they're probably lounging together in Esther's quarters and sipping on wine together. And the king asks Esther her request once more. Um, You will remember in Esther chapter 3, Haman drank wine with the king once, prematurely kind of toasting himself to his success. Now he's drinking again, probably once again, thinking that everything's going to work out to his favor. When the king asks what Esther wants and repeats his offer of up to half his kingdom, she finally answers, but she answers in a really strategic way. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For if we had been sold, I and my people, for we have been sold, I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now, obviously, the king is shocked. Esther has just said that her life's in danger, and not just her life, the life of her people. And if it had been that she had been sold as a slave, maybe she wouldn't have said anything. But the problem is that she's been threatened to be killed. Who in the world would dare to kill the queen? Who would dare to kill the queen's family? This is not to be tolerated. The king is angry. Esther answers, a foe and an enemy. This 
wicked Haman. Can you just imagine Haman's face at this moment? <laughs> what me? <laughs> like, like a little bit of wine spilling out of the glass? Whatever it is. I mean, this is just, suddenly, the game is up. The plot's out. She's unveiled it. She's uncovered it. Here's the villain. The king apparently is so angry that he has to leave the room. He just storms out. Now, an angry king storming out of the room is not good news at all. So he just storms out. And while he's out, Haman realizes his life's in danger. So he begins to beg the queen. Now, it says that he was falling on the couch where Esther sat. Now, where I, what I think this means is he was kind of groveling, right? Kind of, kind of at her feet, grabbing her feet. You remember that Haman, this is, this is juicy, okay? This is kind of a delicious fall, okay? Um, Haman wanted exaltation. Haman wanted to be king. Everything in him wanted the top spheres of royalty, the top tier cake of being king. The king walks in while Haman's groveling at Esther's feet, and he interprets it that Haman's trying to molest the queen. That's the essential meaning of the word. Will he even assault? You look up that Hebrew word, it means violate. Will he even violate the queen in my presence, in my own house? You see, to try to violate the queen back then in the ancient days, you, you touch the queen inappropriately, you try to molest the queen somehow, you, you, you sleep with the queen, whatever it is, whatever you do inappropriately with the queen is interpreted as usurpation, right? This is insubordination. You remember when, when Absalom took over Jerusalem and David had to flee for his life? What was the first thing Absalom did? Slept with David's concubines. It was a way of solidifying power. So to sleep with the king's wife is self-exaltation and is punishable by death. Was Haman trying to molest Esther? I don't think so. But the fact that the king thinks that he was and then sends him off to his death is just ironic. That Haman, who wanted to be king, Haman, who wanted to be treated as royalty, is misinterpreted by the king for trying to attain royalty for himself and is then judged. That's how these ironic reversals go. Is that it just happens suddenly. It happens out of the blue. And sometimes it happens in such a way that, well, most of the time, it happens in such a way that only God can be credited for it. The judgment's swift. They cover his face, which is the mark of a condemned man. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, and quite possibly one of the eunuchs who had brought Haman to the feast, um, tells the king that there's a, uh, a gallows that's been constructed for Mordecai, who saved the king's life. Just happens to drop that little note there. By the way, there's something already prepared. The king answers real quickly, hang him on that. Sounds good. Now, it might help to know that the Hebrew word for gallows is actually tree, right? So when it says there's a gallows, there's a tree, there's a pole that's been erected. And that should bring to mind Deuteronomy 21, 23, which says that a man who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. So Haman is hereby cursed, hung on a tree, impaled on a stake, whichever way you want to say it, but it's, it's the tree in Hebrew that the author wants you to see. And this is a key sign that Haman's fall has not come just because King Ahasuerus judged him. Haman's fall is because God has cursed him. 
You will remember Genesis chapter 12. God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will. That was a promise. And that promise is fulfilled here. Haman was the most powerful man in the entire kingdom. And yet he falls into his own pit. My friends, can we just bask in the victory and the glory of the promises of God that however high the enemies get, whatever weapon they form, whatever way self-exalters come and try to oppress God's people, there is nothing they can do. We are invulnerable as the people of God. They can kill us. They can slaughter us. They can bury us. They cannot stop the reversal to come. No one can. We shouldn't act so hopeless then. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. God tells his people, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. This is the the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. God will vindicate his people in his own time, in his own way, to his own glory, not yours and mine. So how do we live in light of this reversal? I think of two applications. First, Esther encourages those who suffer, those who are enduring hardship, to humbly wait on the Lord for salvation. You know, I think of 1 Peter chapter 5, which tells those who suffer, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. As we suffer, as we wait, I think it's helpful to remember we cannot be our own saviors. In fact, attempting to work salvation by our own hand is a form of self-exaltation and will always lead to disaster. Always lead to disaster. We see that with David and Saul over and over and over again. You must not, you must not try to attain your own salvation. You must wait on God, your Savior. As we mentioned last week, this, this does not necessarily entail passivity. It entails faith and faithful action, having both the trust that God will do as he has said, and then living in and acting in that faith that he will do as he has said. It's not for you to save yourself. It's not for you to vindicate yourself. In fact, any attempt to do so will just add you among the list of self-exalters who are in this power play. Wait on the Lord. Now, I think secondly, this section of Esther also warns us against pride and self-conceit. Oftentimes, when we hear the word reverse, when we think about God exalting the humble and humbling the self-exalting, we tend to too quickly assume that we're going to be the humble that's exalted. Can I just warn you that that is a dangerous assumption? We shouldn't think that we will naturally be the ones who are lifted up. Whoever thinks he stands, be careful not to fall. That's the warning over and over and over in Scripture. You know, it's difficult to evaluate our own humility. And more often than not, we're completely blind to our own pride. I have, I have learned that over and over and over again. The moment I think I'm the most humble, probably the moment I'm the most proud. We are blind to our own pride, 
blind to our own arrogance, blind to our own self-conceit. That said, humility is not just something that you attain and you say, got it, I'm a humble person now. No, it's something that you live in, something that must be, you must daily repent of pride, must daily walk into humility, must daily lower your high head. That's something that God has called us to. The uh, New Testament describes it as a mindset. Take on the mind of Christ, which is rarely looking at yourself at all. It means looking to serve others sacrificially, to love others, to show grace and kindness and mercy, to stand up for the weak. Those are, that's what God is called to, not to look to ourselves, but to look to others. It's a mind of Christ. Power plays and domineering are not becoming of being a Christian, right? It's just not to be named among the people of God. In fact, power plays, domineering, bullying, demeaning remarks are all antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to something better than being puffed up and to blowing more hot air into our already overinflated egos. The goal of life is not to fill your own ego, to be better, to be exalted, to retain power. Your goal is to humbly serve. Haman exalted himself. And just consider how great his fall was. My friends, I think we we should read Esther not only for the hope that's in it, but also for the warning. Do not be a self exalter For God will humble self-exalters, and he will exalt the humble. Now, of course, all this points us forward to Jesus, doesn't it? The small reversal we see in Esther 5 through 7 points us forward to an even greater reversal. When Jesus would come, and as Mary says, it's because of Jesus and his birth, his life, that God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Those of you that have sat in the ashes of suffering and hardship, the gospel holds out good news. Jesus has come. He has secured a great reversal. He has shown strength in his arm and he has exalted us to heavenly places where we can feast and be satisfied. For those of us that are proud, let the gospel bring you to repentance. To remember that you have no real reason to raise your head higher. You see, redemption does a two-handed work. It lowers high heads. Those of you that might have your head just a little too inflated, it does a work in bringing those heads back to size. But it also lifts the heads of the broken. If Esther does its good work in our life, it won't just be us clapping at another great reversal. It'll be us in our lowliness, exalting in the fact that God is God. It'll be us in our exalted, arrogant state, repenting and becoming humble. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this small story that gives us a glimpse of what's to come in Jesus when he brings all your promises to fruition. Father God, I pray that as we um, take the Lord's Supper, that we will do so humbly. Father, knowing that we uh, do not have a right to sit at this table. Father, we do not deserve to partake of the grace that you have given. 
And yet, God, it's because of your grace and your love, because of your condescension, because you sent your son to take on flesh, to die for us, to wallow in the muck of humanity, and then to be raised that we are now exalted with him to his table. So, Father, now we feast, asking you, Lord, to give us gratitude and humility. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.